Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 2nd, 2017. This is episode 1961 of the Survival Podcast. And while I'm still struggling a bit with this uh, cold croup, flu, whatever, laryngitis causing crap, uh, as you can hear, my voice is doing much better. So I will try to do a great show for you guys today. I've been holding back recently so it's not to strain the vocal cords. You know, for me, if I, if I put myself to where I can't talk, It's like a it's like a pianist who has his fingers in a cast, or it's like a uh, uh, I don't know a, an actor who can't act, like you know the ones on the Oscars, something like that, right? So it's my livelihood, right? So uh, I try to try to keep going, but sometimes you gotta pull back a bit. Uh, so today, hopefully, the energy will be back in the show the way I like for it to be. And uh, it's a listener call show, which should make it easy, because it's one of my favorite shows, because I get to talk to you guys through the magic of technology. As you call the Think Line at 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK. And I've got some calls lined up for you guys today. I've taken a little bit lighter of a load to help, again, with the voice, but uh, six good ones. Uh, how to have the best impact on zoning regulations possible. A guy that has uh, the ability to have an impact on zoning regulations, but... Uh, can't make them not happen. Anyway, thoughts on automated intelligence-driven investing, a.k.a. robo-advisors. Uh, the use of UV window film on cold frames. And I'm going to say right up front, nope, not a good idea, but I'll tell you what is a good idea. Deciding if and if so, how to cash out early on a pension. Um, guy is asking, he has to make a decision by tomorrow. I hope he makes a decision based on what he wants Versus what I say, but I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Um, I, I, I know what I would do, and I, that's what I'm going to say here. And it involves a little math. Uh, next up, uh, can Trump turn around the economy? And the guy sounds pretty depressed about it. And uh, I'm going to propose the question, is that even what presidents are supposed to be doing anyway? Do the presidents turn around the economy, or do presidents get out of the way of an economy? And the, So the question would be more, can he get enough out of the way of the economy? We'll still see. And uh, the propagation of black locusts from suckers and cuttings. I'll give you a resource on how to do it, and I'll tell you why it's not what I would probably do. No, I probably would not do that, and maybe when I explain it, you'll understand why. I'll add more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a .com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1961. And I have a pretty good docket up here for you today. I have Lost in the Military Industrial Complex, uh, contributed by Alex Rugg. The CIA's Invasion of, of Cuba, contributed by Alex Rugg. And It's a Fake, contributed by Southpaw Ben. In this year that was the episode, 1961, we also have Notable Births. Diana, Princess of Wales, died in 97 at age 36 in a car crash. Conspiracy theories abound. Barack Obama born in 61. George Stephanopoulos. Sean Hannity, Ann Coulter. In entertainment, Eddie Murphy, Toby Keith, Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, could do without him. George Clooney, Michael J. Fox, and Leah Thompson. I uh, also have this year in film, West Side Story, The Flower Drum Song, and The Parent Trap. All came out in 61. The year in music, Stand By Me from Benny King. Wonderful song. Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker. And Surrender from Elvis Presley. In other news, Yuri Gergon, 
becomes the first man to orbit the Earth. Three weeks later, Alan Shepard goes suborbital, lands 300 miles away, essentially straight up and straight down. The K-19 Soviet submarine suffers a nuclear meltdown. 22 crewmen sacrifice themselves to jury-rig a new cooling system for the reactor and save the boat. Thereafter, it is named the Hiroshima. The U.S. experimental nuclear reactor melts down. A central control rod is pulled out too far. Sudden vaporization of water causes an explosion. Three men die of their injuries, but were already overexposed to radiation anyway. The portrait of the Duke of Wellington is... I'm just going to say stolen. Um, you can read more about all of that in the TSP Wiki for the year 1961. Let's look at the year 1961's lead story today, Lost in the Military-Industrial Complex. Quote, Were the Soviet Union to sink tomorrow under the waters of the ocean, the American military-industrial complex would have to remain substantially unchanged until some other adversary could be invented. End quote. George F. Kennan, 1987. Hmm. Hold on. Just think about that a second. Just think about that a second. What happened a few years later? Another adversary. Just just think about that quote. Anyway, President Dwight D. Eisenhower says farewell to the nation a few days before John F. Kennedy takes office. In his television address, Eisenhower warns the nation of the problem that the military-industrial complex can present and the responsibility the informed decision has in judging whether their tax dollars are being spent wisely. After all, in this modern world, a large military is required so as to discourage other countries, like the Soviet Union, from warring with the United States or its European allies. On the other hand, the military should not become so large that it simply becomes a means of keeping military suppliers swimming in dough, so to speak. And with his closing remarks, Eisenhower steps down from the world stage, the last president to measure each of his actions against the Constitution, to limit himself when he judged that it did not grant him the power to act. My take by Alex Shrug, the economist Frederick Hayek, Warn that industrialists who have tasted the power that a wartime economy gives them will not be satisfied when the war is over. That is true. With the U.S.-backed NATO presence in Europe, European nations no longer spend as much on their military to defend against the looming Soviet, looming Soviet threat. What Soviet threat, you ask? Good question. Soviets are long gone. While Russia is not exactly an angel of the world, it is not Satan either. But NATO needs a reason to live. So does the industrial complex that supplies it. Thus... Whether or not President Trump has a cozy relationship with Russia, it is not clear to me why we are being so aggressive against Russia under the Obama administration. It was like President Obama was trying to start a war. Unhappy with Russia? Okay. Start a war? No way. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I just want to point out the danger of building such a large military-industrial complex is really that economically it's a disaster to ever unwind from it. You, you have to justify staying there. You know, you say, well, we could just uh, take all of that money and solve all the rest of our problems. We could, but the damage to the economy in the interim could be massive. It would have to be slow over time. And how do you dismantle a beast that large slowly over time? And the answer is you don't. It's like the Terminator. It reconstitutes itself. Eisenhower was trying to warn us about just that. Um, Alex is the last president to check himself against the Constitution. He'd been the first one in a while as well, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe Truman. Maybe Truman. Definitely not FDR. I have to say that as I look at the, the vastness of U.S. history, from George Washington to Donald Trump, I believe it, it's probably the case that Dwight David Eisenhower was the most honest man to ever serve in the office of the President of the United States of America. And instead of looking for another Ronald Reagan or another Thomas Jefferson as a pragmatist in this world, it might be a good idea to look for another Dwight Eisenhower. That doesn't necessarily mean he was in all ways a great president. He made some decisions I was not comfortable with. Well, I should say I'm not comfortable because I wasn't around when he was making those decisions. But as I learned about the Eisenhower years, and there's a pretty good Oliver Stone uh, uh, series on, on the Eisenhower years, you learn that not all is, uh, all is perfect. But when we often tend to let perfect be the enemy of the good, and we end up with instead the lesser of two evils, my thought by Jack Spierko. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. And remember, if you want to call in for a show like this, call 866-65-THINK. You'll get a voice message. Leave me a voice message. Be clear. Be in a quiet area. Ask your question or make your point up front, and then give me the details. You'll be more likely to get on the show. With that, let's go ahead and take that first call. Jack, Dennis Allen, the City Boy Homestead here. My question is about zoning laws. 
After taking my walk to freedom from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, I'm in a position now where I could help write and dictate the zoning laws that are going to be enforced in my area. Unfortunately, I would rather not have any kind of extra government. However, it is being done, and they are doing it to keep out big factory farms and big developers. Development. So my question is, what would you do? What would you say? What would you like to see in the zoning laws for a township that currently doesn't have any? And I could get permitted right now, so I could be grandfathered into anything that is going to happen. Uh, from what I hear and from what I see, actually, the zoning laws are going to keep me in an agricultural area. But, you know, there's a lot of fine detail with that. So any advice would be greatly appreciated. If anybody wants to see my journey of me building a homestead from ground up, please check out DennisAllen.com or look me up on YouTube under Dennis Allen. Thanks a lot, Jack, for all you do. You're a great help to the community, and you're a great help to a city boy homesteader that woke up and decided I was in the life form. So thanks a lot. I'll talk to you later. Okay, so... I'm just going to say, like, are there a lot of big, giant agricultural farms trying to come there now? And that question should be addressed. Like, is this necessary? Uh, we don't want it. Okay, fine. But is there a problem with it? Is there, is there a lot of large, you know, Purdue's putting in, you know, chicken houses a mile long or uh, people wanting to put in, you know, a thousand acres of so soy and corn? Uh, not a typical Pennsylvania thing. So is there a problem? And let's assume that the answer to that is yes. There's people trying to come here and uh, do agricultural practices that the people of this area do not want. Okay, you know how I feel about that, right? You, I mean, honestly, unless you're somehow impacting somebody else's property, I, I, I don't want no government at all. But assuming the pragmatic role of yes, there is a perception of the electorate that there is a problem. Yes, something is going to be done. And uh, the, the answer to the question is, do we need this is going to be yes by enough people to make it happen. So now we have to take an influencer's role. It's a little more complicated than you might think, but let's try to take it one step at a time. So my first question would be, so are we absolutely sure that the only reason that we're talking about this particular issue of zoning in this particular way is to prevent large-scale commercial agricultural farms? If the answer to that is yes, and we'll say we're, if we're going to do anything else with zoning, it's going to be in a separate thing. We're going to stick with this one thing for this particular round. That way we can be concise and to the point and thorough and not have to do this ever again. Okay? And we're not going to go hurting people. So we're, we're all in agreement. That's what we want. We want to prevent that. Okay, then we must define narrowly what that means. So is a five-acre farmstead with, with a few hundred ducks running around on it and some uh, maybe one or two cows and uh, a market garden, is that a large-scale commercial farm? Because you might be surprised that some blue hair on this committee says, yes, it is. Right? So you have to, okay, we have to first define, so what is the threshold? Where can we all agree that we have not crossed into that world? And where can we all agree that we have crossed into that world? So you can almost start with extremes, right? So is the person with a quarter-acre market garden, uh, local agricultural-type concern, are they a commercial farm, large commercial farm? Well, no. Okay, fine. So, so we wouldn't want to do anything that would affect them. Okay, We wouldn't want to stop them from doing what they're doing or somebody coming in and doing that now and helping our community with that type of an effort. Uh, is the person with an acre uh, that, that's basically a homesteader that has a chicken coop and some chickens, and, and as long as they're not bothering their neighbors with the chickens get over the fence, are they a large commercial farm? Well, no. Okay, so we can all agree that like this kind of thing, we'll just leave that shelf for now. Now let's go to the other side. Is a thousand acre dairy farm a large commercial operation? Everybody's yes. Okay, so we know that we don't want that. Is a hundred acre dairy farm that's being run in a very holistic manner, uh, someone that's doing rotational grazing, the place is beautiful, it's a place you'd want to take your kids to, um, it, it's you know being done in an all-natural way, it's not creating a waste stream into our uh, community, is that a large commercial farm? 
And some might say yes, and some might say no, and you may not be able to negotiate past that. Well, it's the same thing, and it's 50. Or how many cows do we have before it's a large commercial farm, right? So what we almost want to do is create a classification of small agricultural concern or community-level agriculture, something that basically says something up to this large is acceptable and will actually encourage more farming rather than less, but in a way that actually benefits our community. And if we can do that, then we can get to a place where we start building a more of a protectionist environment for the small farm rather than an exclusionary environment for farming, if that makes sense. So we say, here's the kind of size and scope and what we would want an operation like this to look like. Here's all the things that we don't need to involve ourselves with. So like, we, we can't get down in too deep into the weeds here and start saying, well, a chicken house can only be X feet from, because then we can actually write regulations that exclude the very people we want to protect. You have to be this many feet from the road and this many feet from the house. No need for that. None. None at all. And the smaller the farm, the more impossible that becomes. And in some cases, you might have people that have been there, and because this has happened. Little farm, no one had a problem with it. They write the zoning regulations. They don't really think about it. And all of a sudden, you tell the guy, well, you got to move your, your, uh, your, your, your chicken processing facility that you've processed on site with. Well, why? It's too close to the, 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 the dwelling, your dwelling. And the guy says, well, the only place you can move it is here. Well, you can't do that because it's too close, close to the road. He's been there for 50 years, never caused a problem, nobody had a problem with it, all of a sudden now it's, it's illegal. So I think the other thing you'd have to say is what we should do is we should look at all of the, all of the types of, uh, like even if we're going to grandfather people, okay, and say that fixes the problem, let's look at all of the places that we wouldn't have a problem with another one like it showing up. Now let's find the little small homestead, the little small farmstead and stuff that, that nobody has a problem with now, that everybody thinks is nice. And say, let's make sure when we write this zoning regulation that even though they're grandfathered, it won't affect, it wouldn't affect them if they weren't. Now, if there's a larger farm that would be affected and you don't want more of those, then we don't worry about them. Now, again, I notice some of you out there biting your tongue right now or actually cursing me because, Jack, you're supposed to be a voluntarist and a libertarian. And yes, but I am not in a position of advising from that standpoint. I'm in a position now to advertise, advise as a pragmatist. If this gentleman doesn't step up and shepherd this, I promise you whatever they come up with will be worse. And they'll come up with something and they'll do it because they're bureaucrats and they've made their mind up to it. Because And what they're legitimately saying is, we don't want a giant farm moving in next to our school or something like that, right? Or next to our, our developing suburban neighborhoods that are the lifeblood and the growth of our community. We don't want them deterred from that. And I think it would make a lot of sense for these people that are going to write these zoning regulations to get off their freaking asses and to go out into the community, not have a meeting. Go out to the community to find 10 or 20 small agricultural concerns and go to them and meet the people that live there and realize that even if you're grandfathering them, they're the type of people you'll be hurting in the future if you do not take them into consideration. And that's probably the best advice I could give. Because what will happen is they'll go out and go, we don't have a problem. This is beautiful. This is nice. Yeah, there's a poop smell over there, but that's what cows do. They poop. You know, and, and then you can just say, like, this is, this is what we're going to design. We're not going to design the zoning regulation to exclude as much as possible. We're going to design it to encourage, if there is to be agriculture, it's to be this type of agriculture. And you might actually then bring in really great people. And you also want to make sure that nothing you're going to do is going to hurt the small homesteader who's not even a commercial farm through some kind of, and not just the existing ones, the next one. The next guy is going to move to your community and go, this place is beautiful. I'm going to put my chicken coop over there. And it, nope, can't do it. You, you got to think about that next guy. So go meet people doing it now so you understand who you'd be hurting. Because you're going to hurt people like them. Then it becomes real and then it becomes personal. That's the best advice I can give. Let's take another one. Hi, this is Joel from Perth, Ontario. I'm calling for a question to ask. 
and concerning investment advisors, in particular the robot kind. It's uh, kind of my knowledge that robo-investing, aka the use of algorithms instead of a human to invest, is rapidly making ground in the market, and I'm interested to know what you think about it, and if there's any substance or if this is all going to be some kind of hype and fluff. Thanks. Bye. Well, I, I think this is like saying, what is your opinion of a gun? Well, whose hands is it in? Because it, it, it's not really what it sounds like, robo-advising. Um, some of the things happen automatically with these robo-advisors, but generally speaking, what it is is a series of tools that allow you to manage your own investments, and they charge you a fee on your investments in return for that advice, which is very similar to your, your random, typical um, uh, consumer-level uh, financial advisor. And I'll tell you the secret, uh, this isn't much different than that. So if you go out and get someone from like American Express, Ameriprise, uh, uh, Primerica, you, you fill in your choice of uh, financial advisors, most of them are Edward Jones, etc. They're not actually doing much for you. Now, if you push them for recommendations, they'll give you specific recommendations based on your personal needs. But in general, what they're all doing is parking you in a series of mutual funds that meet uh, an analysis that they do on you by giving you a form to fill out. In other words, they're doing a job that a, a, a highly trained monkey could do. right? A highly trained monkey could have you fill out a form and deliver that form to somebody else who plugs numbers into a computer that comes back with a recommended allocation and a recommended group of investments that meet that allocation. That's exactly what... Your typical, now I'm not talking about your good ones, uh, that really do develop, you know, that, that take charge of your investments for you, things like that. Um, this is your typical American Express uh, or Edward Jones advisor. The, they, they plug your shit into their computer. Their home office comes up with a recommended series of investments for you. They put you in it, and then they try to talk you into staying in it for the long term and saying this is how much you have to invest every month if you want to retire with X. So all they've done is taken basically the tools that a bunch of people use as employees of those firms and automated it to the point where they have enough of a good GUI, graphic user interface, that you can use them yourself. So they're probably not any worse, probably not any better. Um, but if they were just like they worked perfectly and they could always make the right decisions because of algorithms, um, then everybody would use them and no one would lose any money and we'd all ride around on our unicorns farting rainbows behind us because it's not going to happen. Now, there are algorithmic-driven AI systems that do investing that make some people lots and lots of money. And they are sold to the populace as providing liquidity in the market. In other words, as long as they're there, when you go to sell your thousand shares of uh, a Ford Motor Company, there'll be someone to buy it. You won't have to hope somebody buys it. Now, it might go down while you put the order in, but somebody will buy it. It's bullshit because there wasn't a problem before these high-frequency traders existed. They're using legitimate algorithmic systems that are generally very effective But they're operating extremely rapidly, and they're bringing no value to the market whatsoever. They are extraction tools. And people that are running them are very, very wealthy already. And they're literally paying more money for uh, co-location of equipment that has a fiber optic cable that's 50 feet shorter than another piece of equipment because that's how time-sensitive they are. It does not apply to you, and those tools are not available to you, and you don't have enough money to make use of them because they're making fractions of a percent per transaction, but yet they're making thousands of transactions per day. And, and, and the fact that they're being used is being used to sell this type of automated investment uh, advisement. In the end, you still have to make the decisions about what you buy and what you sell and what you hold. And, and my big problem with most of these is because they're being uh, emulated off of consumer-level financial advisors, uh, they are not really designed to tell you when to get rid of something. They're all designed to tell you what to buy based on your goals. Well, my goals are not to lose money, to make a fair return, and to know when to exit something so I don't lose my ass. 
And, and if they actually built something like that that worked and everybody used it, it would radically transform the market to the place where the market would become less volatile and you would make a lot less money long term because the big, the big thing is the primary way people make lots of money in the market now is someone else has to lose. And then if you knew that, this would eliminate that. Everybody would be dumping the same thing at the same time, which would actually dramatically increase losses because nobody would be dumb enough to hold a stock that was a falling knife. And it would pretty much, at first, ruin the market and then po probably make the market more stable for actual investors versus traders. But it doesn't exist yet. I'm not saying not to use these tools. I'm saying to understand that they are not a guarantee. And if you look, I have a couple articles for you today. Um, the returns that they posted over an 18-month period um, are not that dramatic considered what the market did if you were just in an index fund. Like if you were just tracking the Dow or the S&P, you'd have done better. They didn't beat the index. So if you're going to actually tell me you're bringing me value as an advisor I expect you to beat the indexes, or at least keep pace with them. If you can keep pace or be close to them, and what you do is you, you're even a little bit under them, but you have me in an exit strategy so that during the downturns, we are not participating in most of the downturn. We're sitting in a cash equity position or something like that during the downturns, and we're being conservative, so we're not quite matching them. Well, then you got to, that's not what these things do. So be very careful. You have to treat them like a gun, and you have no gun training. That, that's kind of how you have to look. You have to, you know, I would look for, if I wanted to use these, ones that you run them as a simulation first, where there's no real money in them, and you can learn to use the tool and learn what would have happened had I done this and compare it to wherever you're managing your investments now. And if it consistently does better for you and you feel more informed by it, well, then maybe you start looking at maybe allocating something to it. Um, but my, my real advice is find a really good investment advisor, and it ain't easy. And, and I will just simply say, because of who I am, I can't specifically tell you, go use this person or that person or some other person. I can't do that because I'm a public, um, a public person, and I can't endorse any financial advisor at all. Um, it's, a, it's an ethics thing with the trade department or FTTC or something like that and I, can't, I just have been advised I can't say go use the, any of these people. That I, I can't do that. Okay? Uh, let's take another one. Good morning Uncle Jack. This is Brian formerly of Baltimore. I have a question for you and Stephen Harris. Um, it's about using a window privacy film on a cold frame or greenhouse. If you put it up backwards Would that allow the light to come in and then keep the light in the green in the greenhouse and keep it warmer throughout the evening? But my only thought is that it may block some of the beneficial UV light from actually entering the greenhouse. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Love what you do, buddy. See you. Um, no. And I don't mean to pick on you or anything, but it's just like that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So this UV film. It doesn't block heat. It blocks UV that brings heat along with it. So it's, it's not really a good heat trap. And it's not like, um, it's not like a filter. It's a one way thing. Like, like let, it lets, it lets it in one way, but blocks it the other. It, it's not, it's not, uh, unidirectional. It's bidirectional. Um, the, 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 the you, you could, if you flipped it around, it would do the same thing. Okay. So, That's the first thing. And then, it's the, again, it's not really any more of a heat trap. It's, it's a wavelength blocker. So that, that, that heat comes in being carried by a UV wavelength, and putting that film blocks that heat from penetrating your window because it's blocking that spectrum of light. But once that heat's built up in the ground and it's dissipating out, it doesn't really do anything to block that heat from getting out. At least that's my understanding of it. And even if it did, flipping it around wouldn't, would, again, it's not unidirectional. It's bi it blocks in both directions. Okay? So, how would we solve this problem? Actually, very, very simply. Your solution is a piece of styrofoam. A piece of styrofoam as big or slightly bigger than your window. 
and something heavy to put on top of it so it doesn't blow away. And when you close your cold frame at night, you put your piece of styrofoam over it, and I would do that before all the light is gone, and that way you haven't already had the point where you begin to lose your heat, and that would be your solution. And you could just go to Home Depot, Lowe's, etc., get yourself a piece of foam board insulation, cut it to size, and use that. And that would be basically movable insulation, like the book from Stephen Harris. If you wanted to make your life even easier and you had a piece of uh, uh, plywood around that you didn't have to spend extra money on, it was about the size of what you wanted, I would cut your plywood to shape, I would cut your piece of foam board insulation to shape, and I would attach your foam board insulation to your piece of plywood, and that way you don't have to worry about it blowing away or what have you. The plywood is, you know, so, and when you're done with your, for the season, Put it inside so it doesn't, you know, get worn out by the elements, and you're good to go. And and that's how I would solve this problem. Simple, easy, no complications whatsoever. And uh, unlike a greenhouse, which is a little bit more complicated to do something like this with, when you have a cold frame, you have a single pane of glass. Uh, very, very easy to add that additional insulation. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Scott in Texas. Uh, trying to figure out if I should take the offer that I received from my FedEx pension to cash out and or roll over early. So I worked for FedEx for 12 years from 95 to 06, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm now el eligible for a pension starting, I believe, at normal retirement age, 67, for the amount of around $500 a month. They just offered me some other options as a special election that I need to decide on about before Friday, which I kind of waited the last minute. I could start taking a monthly amount right now around 180. It's probably the least likely choice that I would make. Or I, or they would cash me out for $40,000. Currently, I'm 42 years old, and I'm not completely confident in 25 years that this pension will still be around. And uh, I would, of course, be penalized on the cash payout and might end up with 28000 if I just took the straight cash. Um, so I'm thinking of just rolling it over into an IRA, and then I could uh, start investing it. And I've been doing some calculations, and it seems like if I in invest into it and get maybe 5 6% a year, um, over the next 25 years and beyond that I would actually end up with more money and I'd be in control of it um, instead of waiting until I retire to start getting it. And who knows? I don't think the amount is going to go up. So as inflation goes up, it's going to be worth less. Um, so I'm just not quite sure what kind of IRA to roll it into or what to roll it into and how that would work and if I'm going to have to pay taxes on it this year as income. So just let me know what you think. I really appreciate your help. Thanks. Bye. Okay, this one we have to look at math, and it's all about math and then a little bit of intuition, but it's certainly not about emotion. So let's compare your least favorite option of, of, uh, of receiving $180 a month starting now with your other least favorite option of leaving all the money in place and waiting for your $500 a month uh, by the time you're, you'll start getting at 67, assuming no more changes to the plan where they don't raise the retirement age or anything like that, and assuming the plan makes it. If you just took that $180 a month right now and uh, you, you said what I'm going to do is create my own pension fund and I'm going to wait till I'm 67 to, uh, to, to use any of the money from it. And I'm going to set up a, a Roth IRA and I'm going to have very small tax consequences because it's not a large amount of money even though it's an early payout and I start taking my $180 a month and I'm just going to put it into a, a Roth IRA. If you got no interest on it whatsoever, if you put it in a zero interest cash value fund at 67 you'd have $54,000, assuming your current age is 42, uh, before that other plan gave you 500 bucks. If you stopped getting the money at 67, which you wouldn't unless you die, right, then you would go to 76 before you broke even. So the 180 a month right now to me is a better deal than waiting the 67 period. Okay, but now we've got to do the other math. 
Let's assume that you do have to pay the tax consequences on it. And God, I wish you would have got this to me two weeks ago instead of trying to make a decision tomorrow. And remember, I'm not an advisor. I'm just giving you my perspective. If you only end up with $28,000, then since you took a tax hit on it, um, you, the, the, the problem is you probably can't. See, I don't know. This is where you're going to have to find out. Why would you take a tax hit on it? If you're actually rolling it to an IRA, if that's an option, you shouldn't take a hit. You should be able to roll it like a lump sum out of a company IRA. So if they're actually just giving you the cash, the problem that you have then is finding a way to put it into a tax-deferred retirement uh, as a lump sum. That can be difficult uh, depending on your income level and the amount of money, and this is a, a significant amount of money. But there are ways to get that done. Uh, or we pay the taxes on it and we get into a Roth IRA, but we'd have to do that over a number of years because we can't just go drop twenty eight grand in a Roth IRA. There's contribution limits. But we it's certainly money that's eligible for a Roth IRA if we pay taxes on it. Okay? I prefer a Roth because we're gonna never pay tax on the gains. And after a certain amount of time we can get all the money back out that we put in, leave the gains behind. It gives us options a conventional IRA doesn't. But I don't know you can just drop this into an IRA because of the amount of money and contribution limits, okay? Because um, if you could, you'd, you'd pay the taxes and then dump the 28 and then write the 28 off and get money back, right? And they ain't going to let you do that. They, they know that trick. They invented it. But regardless of the form that it's kept in, if we take $28,000 and we, we save it for 25 years, which is the difference between 67 and 42, and we make a penalty 5% return on it, that's $94,000. Okay? So... Let's take a look at that ninety-four thousand versus waiting for the uh, waiting for the uh, the, the five hundred dollar a month pension from uh, FedEx. We'd have to draw for one hundred and eighty-eight months, which is roughly fifteen years. So you'd be eighty-two before you broke even, and then you would gain. But that would assume that your ninety-four didn't grow over the next fifteen years. Which, if you continue to make five percent on it, it would. But yet you're drawing from it. At a rate of to make everything copacetic, say 500, you start taking 500 a month out, you, you would be depleting your balance, but you wouldn't fully deplete your balance in that time. But that, that would kind of be where you'd, you'd break even 87 years of age. Well, I, I hope you have a very long life. I really do. But a lot of people don't live to be 87. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, not 87, 82 would be your kind of your break-even age. And we're gonna, I'm going to say that, to be fair, we got to add five years to that. we got to add at least five years to that for the continued return uh, as we're drawing down the 94K. So 87 would be your true break-even, and a lot of people don't live to be 87. So mathematically, the worst decision is leaving the money in there and waiting for the 500 bucks. Uh, all the math works to your advantage to take it now and do something with it. I, I don't like the 180 a month because if you have concerns about the longevity of the plan, and usually they start doing stuff like this when they're trying to ensure the longevity of a plan, meaning I either is a problem, um, then, you know, either one of those could lose long term. But you got to really get a firm answer to this. Is there a way to roll this into a retirement pension and not take the tax hit? That's a very important question because then everything gets better. Because if we can drop 40K into an, a Roth IRA especially, you probably can't do that, but a 40K into a regular IRA and make our piddly 5%, then we're going to have at 67 about 135 grand. Which is why they don't want you sticking around till then. It's not really you personally that's, that's that problem for them. It's other people in the plan that have that problem. And you're kind of getting, see, I think you're getting a gold star here, right? Because you're not getting a full pension and yet they want to buy you out. You're getting a partial pension and yet they want to buy you out. I would take the money and, and I would do something with it, but that's what I would do. But that's my rationale. It's all about mathematics. Because let's, let's go back here and even say you, 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 you want to be so conservative, you're going to make 2% on 28. You're going to take all, the whole tax hit, and you're going to be so conservative, you're going to make 2% money. You're still at 45 grand. You're still at 45 grand. So you're still looking at being 87 ish before the 500 a month, if everything holds together, catches up. 
to a 2% return on the total tax hit with no tax sheltering. I, I just think that I, I would take the money in this situation. But you should, you should talk about this with any advisor that you have as to how to be smart about it from a tax position. Because there may be some way out of the tax hit, and it may be very important how you do it for that, uh, that avoidance to occur. I don't think avoidance is the word that I should – deferment. Because avoidance is illegal, deferment, tax deferment. It may be a way to defer those taxes by rolling it into some sort of qualified uh, equivalent, where you can't just dump 28 grand in a IRA this year, but you can roll 100 grand into one. That, that's that's how that works. So check into that. And I'm sorry you only have one day to figure this out now. Will Trump be able to turn the economy around, or is it just? So many forces that are at work that it's going to be like this for a long, long time, for, for the duration. Anyway, thank you. I love your show. Bye now. Okay, so I, I don't want to read too much into anything that anybody's doing, but I, I do feel sometimes like I'm pretty good at being intuitive as to a person's emotional state, and you sound depressed. Uh, you sound like you have a very gloomy look of not the future economy, but the current economy. Um, not so much one of these people is worried the economy is going to go off the rails, which it could and it might not, and there's always ways to adapt, etc. But one of these people is like, right now sucks. Um, I've lived through economies that sucked, and this is maybe it sucks light, but it doesn't suck. I can tell you, I don't care who's president, it's not going to stay the way that it is. And the forces at work are forces of change, not forces of, 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 of stasis. Uh, the continued advance of automation poses a huge risk to the average laborer and into many white-collar laborers and into many professions Not the elimination of the profession, but the vast reduction of the number of people necessary to do the work. So we won't get rid of lawyers, but we'll need less of them. We won't get rid of doctors, but we'll need less of them. Yeah, really. Yes, really. Like, even those professions are completely insulated. Though doctors and lawyers will be some of the last to go, because they're both pretty good with their gilding, right? Which is another word for labor unions. Because the American Medical Association is actually a giant labor union. I don't know if you know that or not. So when they're recommending you do something, think of who you're getting the recommendation from. But uh, So those changes are going to occur. I mean, and the other thing is Trump turn around the economy. Trump is doing some things that economically make a lot of sense. He's doing some other things that, uh, like, you know, possibly launching trade wars that maybe don't make so much sense because people tend to overlook how many American entrepreneurs are making money by importing items from these countries that we seem to have such a problem with in our trade deficits. So you have to strike a very careful balance there. And to be fair to Trump, which is sometimes hard to do, um, but I try to be fair with everybody, even people I don't like or people I hate. I hated Obama, and I still try to be fair with him. Um, and I don't hate Trump. I just dislike Trump, and uh, but I want to be fair with him. Uh, when you hear extreme positions on trade, you have to temper that with a pattern of behavior, which is Trump always takes the extreme position, and he always moderates the position over time. And that's because he's a master of the deal. And if you and as long as your extreme position is, and I get to shoot you in the face with a bazooka, you always want to take the extreme position to your side. Always beyond what you even want. This is how you get a deal. If you start with a, 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 a well-thought-out, reasoned, moderate position that already accommodates the person you're negotiating with, the only direction for you to move is away from your position. Since you, st since you set the starting point, the only thing that can happen from that point is you can get drug away from it. So if we want to end up in the middle, we start at the extreme, and we can give up an awful lot to end up in the middle. So I think a lot of Trump's trade rhetoric is the same as his immigration rhetoric. Round them up and get rid of them all. He never intended to do that. Trump's now talking about normalization of immigrants that don't cause problems, that aren't criminals. Okay, Donald Trump was always for that. Even when he came down the escalator and said they were rapists and murder, he was always for that. Because that's the only way you can sell it to him. Remember I said we'd have a strong man come in in this election? And I said that 
like the day Barack Obama got elected, that eight years from now, the strongman Republican would come in and sell you all the things a Democrat could never sell you. You just got the greatest salesman on the planet as your president. So if you, if you are for a lot of Democrat positions, but you also think if they're done in, in the dark, then this is your guy. So what I mean by that is, if you think that we need to have something like a government option in healthcare, but we also need as a vast free market to compete with it, this is your guy. Because by giving you the vast free market, you'll be able to sell the government option. Is I have to compromise with the Democrats to get the rest of the stuff. If you want normalization for the average immigrant, but you want all of the people that are convicted of felonies thrown the F out, and you want the bleeding stopped at the border as best as can be done under the circumstances, then this is your guy. Because the Democrats and the Rhino Republicans could never sell the American people on normalization. Only a guy from the extreme position can. And that's a lot how Trump's approaching the economy. Trump is a, I believe Trump believes in what he's doing on the jobs front. And I believe he believes he's qualified for it. But I believe he's overestimating the ability to bring back things like manufacturing and mining, etc. Um, as coal dried up, for instance, he keeps talking about putting our miners back to work. Um, many of the places they used to sell that coal to have switched to other fuels. And switching back isn't really in the cards. Like, they've made the switch to natural gas. Why do you think, you know, the, the energy companies, well, the energy companies mining gas were completely behind the push to regulate coal and make it very, very difficult to mine. Yet in certain places like Wyoming, where it's all being done by automated machinery, um, coal's still coming out of the ground as fast, in fact, faster than ever. Did you know that? There's more coal coming out of the ground in Wyoming right now than ever has, and it's being run by automated freaking trucks and, and, and excavators, and it's being dumped onto tr to train cars, and it, there's a train car a minute coming through picking it up. Check out Google Earth. You can find it if you look hard enough. Somebody showed it to me on a tablet once. I, I couldn't find it for you, but it's there. Train load after train load of coal coming out of Wyoming. While mines are closed in West Virginia, well, middle of nowhere in Wyoming, not a lot of watersheds to protect, regulations just don't seem to apply there, jobs not lost because computers are already doing most of them. And that's unfortunately for our economy in some ways, unless we can adapt to it, the recipe for the rest of it, right? So it's, you can do whatever you want to bring the money back. And I think Trump's plan, if enacted, will bring lots of money back, repatriate billions to the United States. Because you let Apple repatriate $80 billion and they don't take a 40% tax hit on it, they'll bring it back. They don't want it in China. They put it there because we treat their money like shit. Where does money go? Where it's treated well. So China's treating their money better than we are, so it went there. If we treat their money better than China, plus they get the security of the United States, they'll bring their money back to the United States. They won't do it because they're patriotic. They won't do it because they love America. They'll do it because they're smart business people. They can't do it now. They'd get sued by their shareholders in a class action lawsuit, and they would lose. If every if Apple brought $80 billion back to the United States today, they'll take a 40% hit on it for a repatriation tax fee. They'll lose 40% of it, almost half. $34 billion and change? So you're an Apple stockholder. Your company just lost $34 billion by moving their money from one country to another. Are you pissed? You should be. And even if you're not, a lawyer will take up a class action on your behalf and sue Apple and win for being reckless with their fiscal responsibility. So if you want Apple and other companies like them to repatriate that money, then you need to create an environment conducive to them doing it without being sued by their own shareholders. By the way, the people making the decision are sometimes the largest shareholders, and they don't want to lose that money either, do they? See? See how it works? Really, really simple. So I think a lot of what Trump's doing is good from an economic standpoint. But I think the effect that it can have will be largely limited, so the companies will come back, but what they're going to do is use an awful lot more computers and robots to do the work than people. So the company coming back and the capital coming back doesn't directly have a direct net effect on jobs. And we're going to have to have a more entrepreneurial, innovative spirit in this country. And Trump seems to be working hard to do a lot of deregulation. Unfortunately, 
I feel like most of that deregulation benefits large companies rather than small startups. And when Trump's talking about startups, he's talking about, you know, the entrepreneur that can go out and get a billion dollars to start a new company of one form or another, or 500 million, or even 100 million, or even 50 million. He's not talking about the guy that's bootstrapping it for a couple hundred thousand bucks. I, I you know, so. If we can get the healthcare repeal and replace, I think you're going to get something that's 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 basically government takeover of healthcare. I forecasted that eight years ago. But if it takes the load off of the companies, then that will have a positive economic impact short term. But here's the reality: you need to stop worrying about whether Trump can fix the economy, because Trump is temporary, just like Obama was temporary, just like Bush was temporary, just like Clinton was temporary. You are permanent until you cannot fog a mirror anymore. So you need to be more worried. And I think the problem is the reason you sound depressed is the economy's not working for you right now. Well, you need to figure out how to make any economy work to your benefit. You need to be adaptable and innovative for yourself and your own personal economy. And then you stop caring so much about whoever's in charge of it because you have a circle of influence directly around you. And people like Donald Trump and Barack Obama and George Bush, whoever's next are outside of your circle of influence. So you need to take the reins of the horse into your own hands. I hope that makes sense. Let's take uh, one more and we'll wrap up for the day. Hi, Jack. I got a question for you about um, getting black locust suckers. I got a house that um, that was foreclosed on about 14 years ago and it has a large black locust track in it. And uh, going back up, the house has been vacant ever since. And... Uh, I was just wondering what time of the year would be best to pull some black locust suckers out of the ground. How do you pull them out? How do you know what ones to pull out? And what time of the year should you do that? It, it's um, it's in zone 4 Bravo. Uh, that's up by Fort Drum, New York. Um, look forward to hearing your answer. Thanks, man. Have a great day. Okay, the, the basic answer to the question is you should do it when the trees are dormant, i.e. now, there's a procedure for it. I have linked to an article in the show notes in case you want to do it anyway, in spite of what I'm about to tell you. Um, but now, and you can take root cuttings, or you can actually take suckers and root them, or you can take suckers that are coming up out of the ground, dig down around them, and remove root with them, and then pot them up or plant them out, and they'll do just fine. Black locust is very conducive to this. So why would I say not to do it? Because you're going to anger the black locust gods. So the reality is black locust trees, specifically up from the ground around them, generally do not sucker aggressively. No, that's heresy. No, it's true. Unless their soil and root mass is disturbed. So if you have like a bunch of goats go and graze the shit out of the root system of black locusts, go in, never come back, versus come back repeatedly and graze off the suckers, um, it will go sucker nuts on you. If um, you have a bunch of erosion, a lot of exposed roots, and some damage to those roots, it will send up a wall of evil, mean suckers. And it will become an impenetrable wall of black locust. We do not want this. So part of the procedure for taking a root cutting from a black locust, is dig up the surrounding roots, find a piece of root about an inch long, and cut it, and then, you know, basically start a sucker off of that root cutting, like like doing it with comfrey. We have just upset the root gods, and next spring, that tree is going to sucker like crazy. If it's in a place you don't care that that happens, and you want trees somewhere else, that's fine. Okay, you can go ahead and do it. But the reality is, as far as I'm concerned, the best way to propagate black locust is from seed. And it's so easy to do that I would rather you go get seed pods from your locust trees, put a whole bunch of them into a ball jar, and turn the hot water on on your faucet and fill up a pot, small pot of water. Put the water on the stove and turn it on high. Let that water come up to temperature. While it's doing that... Run the hot water over your ball jar on the outside, not inside at this point. You want to warm it up so when we dump hot water in it, it's not cold. It doesn't crack and break on us. 
when that water in that pot is to the point where it's almost ready to boil. You know, it's like got a couple little bubbles that's steaming really hot. Kill the heat. Make sure we got our jar nice and warm. Set it in the sink in case there's a, a fiasco, an error. And pour the hot water over the back locust seeds. Let them sit overnight. And by tomorrow, the next day, they should be nice and swollen up like you're going to make a little bean soup out of them. The ones that are swollen, take those, put them on a damp paper towel, put the damp paper towel inside a plastic bag and set it somewhere warm. Check it over the next few days. As they get little sprouts coming out of them, plant them into a pot or into the ground where you want them to grow, and they will grow very, very rapidly and put down incredibly strong roots. Okay? That's what I recommend that you do. If you want to propagate them from the trees that are there because you want to do self-propagation. And in two years' time, because they've grown their own roots and because they've grown from seed, they will be as, as large as any tree that was grown from a root cutting. They really will. You won't lose anything on it. And a place where you have your existing locust growing, you won't encourage massive suckering that becomes problematic. The truth, when I want locust trees, and if I had a whole bunch that were already producing seed around me, this is still what I would do. I go to a website called Cold Stream Farm, and I buy them. And this is why I buy them. Because I can buy a 100 6-12 inch black locust trees right now, dormant bare roots from Cold Stream Farm, 6-12 inches tall, for $71. A hundred of them. Now, if I want five, I'm going to pay about $265 a piece for them. So, $15 bucks plus shipping, right? But I can buy a hundred of them for $71. I can buy one to two foot, a hundred of them for $93. $93. And there's a price break that makes it pretty attractive to buy that many. Again, I can buy uh, one or two footers, a hundred for seventy-seven dollars. If I only buy fifty, it's forty-six bucks because they're ninety-three versus a dollar thirty a piece. Okay. So when I look at that, and I think if I had to take care of fifty little black locust trees, I don't care if they're from cuttings, I don't care if they're from seeds, and I got to take care of them for a year. If you get them up to a nice one to two foot start, then I'm going to go plant out a year, 50 plants for a year. Would I pay somebody $46.50 to do that? Yeah, I think you would too. So I know what you might be thinking. Well, I want to propagate them so I can sell them. There are trees that make a lot of sense to propagate for resale. Propagating trees is like printing money. But if you're going to print money, then you want to print like $5 bills or $20 bills. You don't want to print pennies. It costs more to print the penny than the penny's worth. You'd be better off going to the bank and buying the pennies than you would be making your own pennies. In fact, we can go to the bank and we can buy the penny for a penny. And if it's a copper penny, even though we're not supposed to, we could melt it down and the copper's worth more than the penny. Got it? And if we, if that was legal, there'd be a lot of people melting a lot of pennies. You know, a lot of people hoarding them right now. I think it's foolish because too much bulk for too little return. But copper penny is worth almost twice as much as the penny itself. So if you said, well, Jack, what I want to do is I want to sell black locust trees. Okay, understand this is not a highly ornamental, highly sought after tree. There's probably not a ton of people going to buy them because we can go to Coldstream Barn and we can buy them for $77 for 500 at one to two feet. Hey, we can buy, if we want to buy lots of them, we can get them cheap. Do you know I can get them at two to three feet? I can get a hundred of them for $125. I want to say it again. Now, you, you, when you go to buy them, you might find this late in the year that they've sold out and, you know, it shows that they're available. But when you put that money, they might say we don't have them available, right? But if you get on early, you can buy a hundred, two to three foot black locust. That's a pretty sizable tree. For $125. The dirt and the pot that it goes in to grow it out will cost you more than the tree. If you wanted to sell black locusts in your local market, understand that the person that wants two of them is going to pay 7 bucks plus shipping. This would be your opportunity. You go to Coldstream Farm, you buy 50, you buy 40, you buy 100, you buy whatever it is you want. You pot them up, you let them grow out. And as fast as they grow, you might let them grow until 
you know, early fall when they're nice and leafed out and they're nice and big and they're looking great. And then you sell them into your local market, you pocket the difference, and you do it again next year. This is not a tree, in my opinion, to be as a backyard arborist, orchardist, whatever, uh, nursery to be fooling around with doing your own propagation. There's so many other trees you can propagate that have a higher sale value. Now, if you can find dummies that will pay you $15 a piece for a three-foot black locust tree, go buy a whole bunch of 6- to 12-inch cuttings from these people and grow them out for four or five months and sell them. It's still not worth propagating them because they are such a commodity because they're so cheap. And this is not the only cold stream farm. not the only place you can find them. Uh, Lawyer's Nursery is another place. Most of the state forest nurseries sell them dirt cheap. And the price breaks sometimes, the more you get, it almost gets stupid. You know, you get a hundred for the price of fifty sometimes. So I, I, I'm just advising you not to do this, to think a little bit more creatively with it. Now, if you just want to do it for the purpose of saying, I propagated that tree, and you don't care about suckering, read the article and go do it. But if you want to do numbers, you know, 25 or greater, just buy bare roots and plant them. You'll come out ahead in every way. If you want to learn propagation skills, propagate something that's a little bit more difficult to learn with, but that has an ROI for you. Okay, with that, we've wrapped up today's show uh, once again. And I do want to remind you that uh, if you like this show and you want to support us, one of the best ways to do that is join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll see all the discounts that you get and all the other great features of being a member, supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And the other way you can support us is through TSPAS, tspaz.com. Yep, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z dot com. You go there and there's a link. And you click on that link, and next thing you know, you're on Amazon. So whenever you're going to go to Amazon anyway, just go to tspaz.com first. Cruise on over to Amazon, do your Amazon shopping, buy your stuff. There's no Spearco surcharge or anything like that. Cost the same, shipping, everything's the same, but we get credit for the sale. I also do put up an item most days of the week that, uh, that I use on Amazon.com uh, for review. I have an Encore item, and unlike some of my other Encore items, this isn't something that I put up like, you know, a year ago. This is something I put up last month, uh, actually January, but, but toward the end of January last month. I'm putting it back up because it sold so well. Uh, I have never featured an item that sold as many items in a month as this one. It's the Kingbow Reflector 45-watt LED grow light. And I'm not just putting it up because it did well. I'm putting it up because, first of all, it did so well that I actually put the supplier in a bind and they were out of them for a while. And now they're back. So I thought that would be one reason to do it. The other reason is, as many of them that I saw sell at the end of January and through February, I got zero people telling me that they had a problem. Zero. With a freaking electronic device. And what that means is either there were no problems, or if somebody got a bad one, they contacted Kingbo and they got a replacement. They said, well, I'm not going to bitch about that which is what King Bo promises to do. This is a great LED grow light. We're talking about propagation there at the end. Propagating plants is money, guys. It really is. Some make sense, some don't. Especially, though, your annual vegetables. Look at what's happened. I remember we used to go out and buy, like, a six-pack of tomato plants for, like, a dollar, right? And then I'm like, I'm not starting my own seeds. Now they're, like, three bucks a piece at, at the box stores, and there's less and less small nurseries. You know, now it makes sense to be doing your own propagation of your own plants. Um, and LED grow lights are a great way to be able to bring that activity indoors. And the results people have had with this reflector grow light is pretty outstanding. Uh, and for the price, it is the best thing I have found on the market. And based on your feedback, uh, both the positive and the lack of the negative, uh, the numbers being used, and all the talk about it on Facebook, uh, it's probably one of the best finds I've ever had, so I brought it back for you. With that, um, it's time for the song of the day. And I've made a decision. Uh, John Adam was cool and uh, put together a great list for me uh, of songs starting in, uh, in 1961, which is this year, uh, that are not the number one song, but songs that are indicative of the time or have a good story behind them from that year. The song we have from 1961 is Ricky Nelson, Travel and Man. Travel and Man. And if you don't think you've heard this song, as soon as it starts playing, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that song. Um, and he picked it because he says, 
a song that was fished from the trash and then spent two weeks at number one. So what does that mean? So I got a little story about it here. It says, this song was written by Jerry Fuller, a singer who had his minor hits in 1959 with Betty My Angel and a cover of Tennessee Waltz. Fuller wrote Traveling Man One Day at DeLong De, De, De Prix Park in Hollywood while he was waiting to pick up his wife. He didn't play an instrument, so he beat out the melody on his car's dashboard. For the lyrics, Fuller came up with a girl-in-every-port idea, a guy who travels all over the world and finds a different girl waiting for him wherever he goes. He uses an atlas to get ideas for places and looked up what the word word for girl was in those places. So in German, it's Fraulein, in Mexican, it's Senorita. And in Alaska, it's a cute little Eskimo. He couldn't figure out what the term was in Hawaii, so he went with Pretty Polynesian Baby. Fuller recorded a demo of this song with Glenn Campbell on guitar. He was hoping Sam Cooke would record it, so he brought it to Cooke's manager, J.W. Alexander. Joe Osborne, who was Ricky's bass player, heard it through the wall. Fuller said... Uh, he said, J.W., do you have that traveling song you just played? He said, yeah, you can have it. He reached into the trash, pulled out the demo. Osborne brought the song to Nelson, who loved it and recorded it. The song became his second and last number one hit and gave him a huge career boost. Um, and it goes on to talk about the Ozzy and Harriet show and how, uh, how that played a role in Ricky Nelson's uh, success. I'll put a link to this full article if you want to read it, but... That's the story of this song all the way back in 1969. And boy, this sounds like a song from 1969. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops all over the world, and in every port I own the heart of at least one lovely girl. A pretty senorita waiting for me down in old Mexico. And if you're ever in Alaska, stop and see my cute little Eskimo. Oh, my sweet Fraulein down in Berlin town makes my heart start to yearn. And my China doll down in old Hong Kong waits for my return. I remember the night when we walked in the sand of Waikiki and I held you oh so tight. the sea I remember the night